know, maybe you can open for us then, Katie. All right. Let's do it. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us together today um, on this Sunday afternoon. And I just thank you for the uh, just the continued um, blessing that we're we're getting through Ray's teaching. Um, thank you so much, Lord, for that opportunity. And I pray that uh, you'll just open our hearts and minds to what is uh, on the agenda today to learn. And I thank you so much for your perfect word and uh, for sending us your son. So that we can uh, live. Uh, just also pray for the Pertzers as we open this. Um, continue to keep them safe on their journey here. And as they, they wrap up, um, well, I guess they're going back in September, but um, as they continue on in their time here, just keep them safe and healthy and um, continue prayers for Ruth Ann too and the, uh, their newest upcoming edition. So uh, give you all the glory for uh, what we're about to learn and help us apply it in your name. Amen. 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 One of the things that you uh, notice if you ever just take a book like the book of Romans and work your way through it, you learn pretty quickly that sometimes the author will stress certain things and there's different ways of stressing different things. And one way is just the amount of verses that are given to any one particular topic. And uh, from our perspective, I think we just need to take it that apparently this is something we need to understand. Otherwise, there wouldn't be so many verses. So in our look at the book of Romans, we I've been looking at chapter 14, which is the same topic that we have at the beginning of chapter 15. So we have lots of verses relating to Christian liberty. So Paul is addressing this from uh, different aspects of Christian liberty. And apparently there probably was an issue that existed in the church at, at Rome, the believers that worshiped together and not all in the same place, but multiple churches, some of them house churches, small churches. And this issue of Christian liberty apparently was one that was important enough that Paul would spend a chapter and a half. So chapter 14 through the middle of chapter 15 deals with Christian liberty. So we'll continue our look at it. And I've been stressing throughout the main idea between chapters 14 and the middle of chapter 15, is preventing these conflicts that inevitably will arise and apparently were present at Rome. And we saw similar conflicts at the church at Corinth when we looked at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And Paul is trying to prevent these conflicts in these questionable areas. He's not dealing, and I've said this several times and we need to reiterate it, he's not dealing with clear-cut rights and wrongs, with absolutes, with those things that uh, the scriptures are clear on. It deals with these areas that are somewhat questionable and dealing primarily in this context with things that arise as a result of sometimes culture, sometimes background, different backgrounds, 
have been the result of some of these conflicts. So that's kind of the main theme of all of the verses. And from uh, first 12 verses of chapter 14, the main theme there is the acceptance of one another regardless of these differing convictions. So that's kind of the main theme. That word occurs several times. In fact, it's going to occur again in the passage that we're going to look at in chapter 15. So accepting where people are in their spiritual growth. We have different levels of growth, different backgrounds that people come from that sometimes slow them down or prevent them from growing. And we are to accept one another, particularly in these questionable areas. Then the next passage, the last part of chapter 14, 13 through 23, primarily addressed to the stronger in faith believer or the one that the one that has a better grasp on Christian liberty, uh, he is asked to restrain that liberty, uh, not abandon it. I mean, we don't lose it, but restrain it in the midst of those that uh, may be offended as a result of not having that same freedom. So the restraint of one's own convictions for the benefit of others. And that's that main theme. So now we're looking at a third major area in chapter 15, first six verses. And he's looking at it from a different perspective. Now he's motivating us along the same lines, preventing conflicts in questionable areas. But now based on our responsibility of Christ-likeness, so he's going to use Christ as the example and encourage us along the lines of Christ-likeness. So that's the main theme of six verses. And since we've covered much of what he has in this whole section, we should be able to move a little bit more quickly, and it's possible we might even get through all of the uh, uh, six verses, or at least get close to that anyway. In outline form, we're application of Christian liberty. We've had the reception of differing convictions, first 12 verses of chapter 14, uh, basically the same thing I'm just putting it in outline form, restraint for edification, 13 through 23, and now responsibility of Christ-likeness, 1 through 6. And the first four verses, we have more encouragement, more exhortations. And the main theme, mainly from the, the, the word that occurs three times in those four verses, the idea of pleasing the uh, fellow believer, and again, it's primarily addressed to the stronger believer or the one that has a better grasp on Christian liberty. And uh, the encouragement is to please them by ex not only accepting them, but even thinking in terms of building them up. And we have exhortations in the first two verses. Lots of exhortations here. And you've noticed in the doctrinal section, there were very, very few exhortations throughout chapters 1 through 11, actually. And here we have a multitude of applications or exhortations because it's more in the area of application. So he encourages us along the lines of taking on certain attitudes or certain actions. So verse 1 now we who are strong, and notice Paul includes himself, so he aligns himself with those that have a good understanding of Christian liberty, and 
there's several passages. In fact, if we have time, we might look up, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul uses himself as an example of restricting his own liberty in order to better minister to others. So he includes himself here. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the, the weaknesses of those without strength and not just, and here's the first time he uses the word, please ourselves. So let's take a look at a couple of words there. First of all, the word strong. This is the first time it occurs in uh, the book of Romans. And it's a pretty common word. You can tell if you know a little bit of Greek, what word is related to this word that's translated strong? Dunatos, dunatos. There's another... Dynamite. Dynamite or dunamai, which we get the word dynamite, which has the idea of power or strength. Now, this word in some context has the idea of something that is possible because there's the ability to accomplish something, or in other contexts, the ability to do something or to be able or just simply to be strong, like in this context. Sometimes it could even have a stronger sense of something mighty or powerful. So that's the idea of dunatas, and that's the word that we have here. Um, nothing unusual about the word other than when we talk about the the uh, the ones without strength, we're going to see it's essentially the uh, the opposite of the dunatas, and we'll get to that in a moment. The other major word that we need to look at here is the word to bear that we have in the verse. Now, we who are strong ought to bear. In fact, I should comment on the word ought. That word is used, in fact, we saw it in chapter 13 in the context of owing something. Remember, we owe no man anything except love, and it has the idea of obligation, and it's a strong word, and in that context, we even have the obligation of loving one another. So here, the strong have the obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. Now, the word to bear, bastaso, more often, if you do a word study on it, more often it, you'll find it translating into the word carry. And in fact, very commonly, it has this idea of carrying something. And it's used in this literal sense of carrying a variety of things. For example, in Mark fourteen thirteen, he, this is Jesus, sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying that's the word, carrying a pitcher of water. So used in a literal sense of picking something up and carrying it, transporting it from one place to another. Uh, similarly, in this literal sense, in Luke 10, 4, uh, Jesus encourages carry no purse, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on your way. Now he's sending the disciples on, on their mission and he's basically saying, depend solely on me and the Holy Spirit. Uh, don't take anything with you. Don't carry anything with you. In Luke 7, 14, the carrying of a coffin. And in that context, it uh, is translated the bearers. It says, and he came up and touched the coffin and the bearers of the coffin came to a halt. So it has this idea of literally 
picking up something, carrying it. In fact, it even refers to carrying a burden itself in other contexts. Even Christ himself, in John 19, 17, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, and you could translate it, carrying his own cross. Now, New American Standard translates it, bearing his own cross, just like we have the translation here in uh, Romans chapter 15. So now we who are strong ought to, I think the sense here is not just tolerate, not just the idea of of, uh, putting up with, and it can be translated in that way, or bearing, So not just the idea of tolerance, but I should have shown you some of the usages here. A pitcher, a purse, a coffin, even stones, sandals, burdens, even carrying a person. I should have given you that verse as well. John 20, 15, supposing him, Jesus, to be the gardener, she said to him, remember this is the women at the tomb, sir, if you have carried him away, same word, same verb, picked Jesus out of the tomb and carried him away. Now, I just stress this because I think in this context and in many other contexts as well, we have the idea of not just tolerating the weak, but actually actively involved in helping them. In other words, almost like picking up and helping them with a burden the burden of not understanding the full idea of liberty. Now, it's not talking about teaching them. It's talking about helping them to work through it. Yeah, go ahead, Denise. Ray, when they're talking about bearing the um, weaknesses of others without strength, would that be similar to bear each other's burdens? Same word in Galatians. Yes, same idea. Uh, But in this context... We might be tempted to carry the idea of, you know, put up with them. In other words, bear them in the sense of tolerating them. But I think in this context and the one that you are referring to in the Galatians passage, Galatians 6, 2 passage, it has this more active helping, actually carrying a burden on behalf of someone else. So it's a very active, loving act that I think is in view in in the passage here. So it's, I guess the point I'm making, it's more than just tolerating those because that's our temptation. Uh, We have our liberty. We want to exercise that liberty. Uh, We don't want anybody to restrain it. And here's a, a brother that is easily offended. Instead of us just tolerating them, the encouragement here is to take it even one step further. To Can you give us an example? Yes, thank you. Oh, well, I think what he's already talked about is by restraining our liberty, that in itself helps the, un, the, the, the weaker believer. But it may be taking the focus off of the area of offense or not even presenting the area of offense And rather than being offended by the unbeliever, uh, we think of ways, maybe practical ways to encourage them, maybe uh, uh, suggesting a path uh, of uh, spiritual growth that they might be able to adopt 
that will help them understand this whole area of, of freedom. So that might be one area. I wouldn't address it necessarily directly. In other words, trying to address the problem directly, but uh, doing what you need to do in order to encourage people to grow. And I think that's the whole idea here. I don't and, know it, that, uh, and it's not trying to persuade them to come to your perspective exactly, on that. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. To adopt your conviction. They may not right. be ready. And in the first century, a new believer that comes from a Jewish background, you know, you can eat a ham sandwich and, you know, you can't expect them to immediately to be able to overcome those years and years of tradition and background. It's going to take them a while to to get there. So you may have to uh, restrain every time that you're around them. And that would be what would be what he's talking about here in terms of bearing. You're doing whatever's best for the believer. And the weaknesses, we already saw that word. That word is related to the same word that he uses in chapter 14 to describe the weak, except here it's more the adjectival form. The weaknesses of those translates it without strength. He's referring to the same ones, but he uses a different word. And since he used dunatas at the beginning of the verse, now he uses a dunatas. And those of you that know a little Greek, when you put an alpha before a word, it negates it or gives you the opposite. Like in English, we use the word un for negating or giving the opposite of some idea. So those without strength takes two words to translate the one Greek word Adunatas. So that's the word that we have here. So in verse 2, so we have the first exhortation there, bearing the weaknesses of the those without strength. And then in uh, verse 2, he adds to that, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good. So this kind of adds the idea. Well, oh, I forgot the last phrase there. Uh, not just pleasing ourselves. So there's the first time that word occurs, the the word for pleasing. Then the next verse, each of us is to please his neighbor, second time the word is used, for good. That's the word that I kind of pick out as the central idea here when I say pleasing encouragement, encouragement that pleases, I guess you could say. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good. And we have another word that we want to look at here, the idea, kind of the central word of the passage, to please, aresco. And immediately we might think, well, doesn't the Bible kind of discourage us from pleasing men? And we have passages, we won't look these up, but in Galatians 1.10, where Paul is contrasting the man-pleaser or the one that does things to gain favor with men and uh, pleasing men instead of God. And the encouragement is not to please men in that context. So there are certain areas that we're tempted to please one another that the Bible encourages us against. A lot of times to resolve some conflicts, we will compromise the truth. And in those contexts, I think the Bible encourages us not to uh, please men. In other words, not soften the gospel, 
uh, not uh, soften any doctrine that some people may take offense at. And there's other examples in Scripture of the same word used in this context of not pleasing men. But there's also several passages that, uh, in fact, why don't we look these two up? Would somebody look up 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, where it encourages us along the lines of pleasing God, and that's first and foremost. Anyone have 1 Thessalonians? I do. Okay. Connie? 2, 4. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Okay, so we don't please men. There's one of the contexts, not pleasing men, but pleasing God in a clear gospel presentation. And since you're in 1 Thessalonians, you want to skip to 4.1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us, how you ought to walk and to please God. Okay, by our lives, we please God as well. And one of the main themes is pleasing God rather than men. Now, this passage encourages us to please men in in terms of relationships and particularly fellow believers, fellow brothers in Christ. And in these in this context, it's in these areas of questionable customs or background issues. So there is a context in which we do please men and we do seek to do that. And by doing that, we also please God. So there's occasions when we please men and there's occasions when we do not please them. And the occasion that we do, it's to, in in order to... Um, Promote his edification, to his edification. The things that will promote his spiritual growth, his building up. We've already seen that word, so we don't need to expound upon it. The areas that uh, promote spiritual growth. So those are the exhortations, first two verses there. And now we have the example of Christ by way of motivation. In other words, this is what Christ did. The implication is if we want to be Christ-like, if we want to follow his pattern, if we want to reflect Christ-likeness, then this is further encouragement along the lines of pleasing one another. And verse 3, for even Christ did not, and we have the third occasion where we have the word please, same word, And in this context, uh, referring to Christ, and Christ-likeness is a person that doesn't first think of their own needs, but thinks in terms of the needs of those around us, for even Christ did not please himself. And again, we have the, uh, uh, the same word. And just to give you some examples, let's look up a couple of these. Would somebody look up John chapter 5, verse 30? Someone else look up chapter 8, 29, just to reinforce the idea of Christ not pleasing himself. In fact, we have the alternative in all of these passages. Anyone have, uh, looks like Steve, you got 530? You got your mic open? I do. Somebody got eight. I can. Yep. 
see if somebody's got eight. Somebody look it up while Steve's reading. I have eight. Okay. Maddie, go ahead after Steve reads 5.30. John 5.30. John 5.30. I can do nothing on my own with initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay. Christ not seeking his own, his own will. Kind of the same idea, not pleasing himself, not doing what he would want, but him who sent him. Go ahead, Maddie. John 8, 29. And somebody else look up 14, 31. Okay, 8, 29. Okay. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And there's the word, always doing the things that are pleasing to God. So pleasing others in this context is pleasing to God, and that is Christ-likeness. Sandy, do you have 1431? Yes, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Okay, so he does what the Father commands. He's pleasing God. Now, the word doesn't occur there, but the whole idea is the same. And there's many other passages. This is just kind of a sampling, one of them where the word itself actually occurs. And then the verse goes on, but as it is written, in other words, this is even in the Old Testament from a messianic psalm. In fact, turn to that psalm because I'd like for you all to see a few things from that psalm and just to see how messianic this psalm is. And not only that, but some of these verses that we will look at give us lots of examples of the reproaches that were cast upon Christ himself and illustrate what this passage says that Paul quotes, uh, the quotation in chapter 15 of the book of Romans, the reproaches of those who reproached you. Now, a little background here. This is a psalm written by David, and it reflects some of the life of David, but it goes, because it's messianic, it goes beyond David. And the context of the psalm, David, as he was trying to escape Saul, when Saul was attempting to kill him, and there were oftentimes enemies that surrounded him, the experience of David was those that hated God and poured reproaches upon God as David was God's representative, they reproached him. In other words, they, the hatred for God, David experienced some of that. And since it's a messianic psalm, in fact, Paul here kind of identifies it as that because he attaches Christ to Psalm 69 and particularly this passage, which is in, uh, what is it, verse 9? Yeah, uh, the last part of verse 9. Or it could actually be, uh, let's see, verse, there's another verse in there that it could be as well. But in the context of Psalm 69, the enemies of God take out their hatred and their wrath upon David. And since it's messianic, in some way, it is a foreshadowing 
of the hatred that mankind, the hatred that they have for God is poured out on Christ himself, who is God, but they recognize him as a false messiah. So the reproaches of those who reproached you, the you there is God, fell on me, the writer of the psalm, on David, but also foreshadowing the me there being Christ himself. And that's the application that that, uh, Paul draws from that psalm. So turn to the psalm and notice verse 4. And in fact, if you can trace through it, you're going to see a lot of allusions to things that took place in the life of Christ. So this psalm in in many ways, not only being, well, because it's messianic, foreshadows the life of Christ. So the first thing that we can note here, verse 4, notice it. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Now, I think that was true in David's life. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. Remember, David was anointed king during that time or before that time that Saul was attempting to kill him. Then the last part of verse 4, what I did not steal, I then have to restore. So David, I think that applies very directly to David. But if you look up, and we won't look up, these, you can jot them down though, but in Mark 14, 55 through 59, we have similar hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ and slander as well. In fact, somebody look that one up, and we, we, that one's a good one to read, and uh, we'll come back. Let me show you some other passages in the psalm. For example, notice verse 7, because for thy sake I have borne reproach, there's the word, Same word that uh, we'll find in a later verse and the the verse that Paul quotes. Dishonor has covered my face. That's a clear allusion to the mockings that Jesus Christ experienced before the crucifixion and even the mockings on the cross and the dishonoring of the cross itself, the shame of the cross itself. I think David, in a sense, experienced some of this, but it foreshadows the uh, experience of Christ himself. Let's look at verse 8, and it goes on. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Now, I don't know of an example in David's life, but we do know that even the brothers of Jesus did not believe in him. And tradition says that, for example, James, the writer of the book, and Jude who are brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ, tradition tells us that they believed after the resurrection. But John 7, 2 through 5, tells us that uh, they didn't believe while he was in his earthly ministry. Anyone get uh, Mark 14 so we can kind of look at that one again, the hatred and slander, and see the similarity of what is described in Psalm 69? Anyone get that one? I have it, Ray. Okay, Denise. And Geneva, why don't you get uh, John 7? Denise, go ahead. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. 
Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. Okay, so there's slander. The slander indicates their hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ, and eventually, obviously, they sent him to the cross. And John 7, 2 through 5, particularly verse 5, read a few verses there and then skip to 5, Geneva. Okay, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Even For even his brothers did not believe in him. Okay, even his brothers, and I think these are his siblings, his uh, brothers in terms of family. So, uh, strange from brothers, that is foreshadowed in verse 8. Verse Ray, I think I think we do have evidence of David's estrangement from his brothers. I mean, when he came up to the front to bring them food, they were like, what are you here for? And all of that kind of stuff. And then, really, after he gets picked by Saul um, to, to join his entourage, we don't hear much about his family after that. Yeah, well, that might be an example. Good, good. And verse 11, notice this is Psalm 69. And when I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. And you might use, we won't look that one up, John 1, 46. When, uh, was it Nathaniel was told about Jesus? Nathaniel says, and he used a common saying of the day, can anything good Come from Galilee. That was kind of a, a byword or a proverb, a saying in that time. Notice verse 12. Those who sit in the gate talk about me. Uh, those that sit in the gate are usually leaders or prominent people in a city. They talk about me and I am the song of drunkards. And you might see an illustration of that in the life of Christ. Uh, criticized by rulers Matthew 27, 40 through 44. Uh, we won't look that one up for the sake of time, but uh, I think you're familiar with the passage. This is the scene at the crucifixion. You have lots of uh, reproaches, lots of slander, lots of hatred expressed. And then we have uh, verses 19 through 20, surrounded by enemies. That's pretty clear as well. Not only the trials, but the aftermath of the trials. Christ surrounded by enemies. And those verses, what do I have there? 19 and 20. Thou dost know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor, and all my adversaries are before me. Again, the word reproach in verse 19, and then in verse 20, reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none for comforters, but I found none. That was certainly the experience of David and also the experience that foreshadowed Christ in the events leading up to the crucifixion. 
And another very clear passage, we won't look up the Matthew 27, 34 passage, but it it is out of uh, Psalm 69, 21. They also gave me gall for my food and for, for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. And I think Matthew alludes to that passage in uh, Matthew 27, 34. So the reproaches that we have described in Psalm 69 foreshadow what uh, Paul is quoting in uh, Romans 15.3, the reproaches of those who reproached you. In other words, the hatred that was directed at God fell on Christ himself. And even before the crucifixion, but very vividly illustrated by the events that followed and some of the allusions to uh, Psalm 69. So any comments on that? So Christ is the example. He did not have to bear all of the abuse, but he did it to not please himself. That's the example there. In order to accomplish the greater goal of of becoming the sacrifice that would satisfy the holy requirements of God, that you and I may be justified, that you and I may have a relationship with him. So now we have examples in verse 4, beyond Christ, examples from the Old Testament And verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times, and I think part of what he's getting at here, like Psalm 69, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So the Old Testament has tremendous value. We're not under the law. So there's a distinction we make. But the law and the entire Old Testament that I think he's alluding to here has tremendous value for those of us that live in this era. And in fact, there's a purpose that Paul brings out here. Part of the purpose of the Old Testament for us, the things that were written before the first century, earlier times, was written for our instruction. In other words, we can learn, we can grow from the Old Testament. And it kind of reminds me, Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. We're uh, in our uh, daily Bible reading, uh, scripture, reading the uh, Bible through the year. We're coming on the book of James, which is probably the first book written. And it was written probably 10 to 15 years after the crucifixion. So during that time period, believers were depending on the Old Testament for inspiration. So it's interesting that you mentioned that about the Old Testament. Yeah. Well, that was all the Bible that existed until the New Testament came about. And the New Testament wasn't completed until 95 AD. So the Old Testament were the scriptures. And when it says it was written, it's always referring in the New Testament, it's always referring to the Old Testament. And you need to be careful. There's there's a few prominent preachers nowadays that are minimizing the Old Testament. In fact, there are some that are even blatantly saying that you can scratch the Old Testament out of your Bibles. They don't say it exactly in that those words, but that's the essence of what they're talking about. And they minimize the Old Testament. There's tremendous value there. So there's there's a distinction between not being under the legal requirements of the law we're not under law, but under grace. 
But that does not mean that we rip the Old Testament out of our Bibles. And in fact, the Old Testament has tremendous value to us. And that's why we read it. That's why we study it, because we can learn much from it. And Paul uses it in his teaching here. So you can't really rip it out because you're going to come across the Old Testament over and over in the New Testament. And you won't even understand these passages unless you have a grasp of the Old Testament. Jim, did you have a comment? Yep. Uh, Of course, I'm doing that daily reading, too. I, I was reading in James today myself. And one of the things that uh, um, really, I guess, sunk in uh, to me today that had not sunk in before is there's additional richness to gain out of James uh, when, when, at least for me, when I when I kept in mind that the it was written to Jewish Jewish Christians, the twelve tribes dispersed abroad. And just trying to walk in the Jewish Christian's shoes as I was reading it, I, that, I mean, I, I uh, was encouraged. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and just as Steve had pointed out, at the time that James was written, about 49 AD, the church was predominantly Jewish. It's, right. not, it's not till the church grew beyond Judaism with Cornelius, and even that, that was just the beginning. So for many of the early years of the church, of church history, the church was predominantly Jewish. And in fact, I don't even think there was clear understanding of the nature of the church until Paul gives us revelation in Ephesians when he talks about the mystery of the church in Ephesians chapter 3. So Well, the point being is the Old Testament has tremendous value to us as believers during the church age. We just need to be careful in how we apply the Old Testament, not being under the law. So, well, and my my point is is that in writing to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, that was the that was the body of scripture they had. That's right. So, what they were receiving from James. Was brand new. Would have been in the context of that mindset. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they may not have even been aware that early that uh, there was going to be a New Testament and that there was going to be revelation that would be part of Scripture. Yeah, good points. All they had was the Old Testament. And then he goes on, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, And in this context, he's referring to what was written in earlier times, referring to the Old Testament. As you read the stories and you see the saints persevering, and you also see how God encouraged them, and you read of miracles or you see of answered prayer, you see examples in the life of God's people and how God acts on behalf of them. And you see their endurance and how God encouraged them, that can result in us having hope. We might have hope. In other words, we hope in a God that not only performs miracles, we believe in a God who has our best interests in mind. We believe in a God who has a plan. The Old Testament saints didn't have it easy. Some of them went through extreme suffering. But we also know the outcome of their faith because we have assurance from the Old Testament 
and that should give us hope as well. Now, keep in mind, and I think some of you know uh, the biblical idea of hope. The biblical idea of hope is not just wishing for something to come about, but what? What is the biblical idea of hope? Relying on the reality. Relying on the reality. Yep, that's one thing. I would call it confident expectation. Confident expectation. Very good. Yes. In other words, confidence because of, of the God that we hope in who is real and he's given us assurance. And in some cases, he enters into covenant with men. So that gives us assurance. So hope is like faith or is an aspect of faith that looks forward and faith is trusting in what God has done and what God has said. And that gives us a future perspective in terms of having confidence in the outcome or where God is taking us. So that gives us those first four verses where pleasing others in it is encouraged and particularly from the example of not only Christ himself, but uh, the encouragement that we get from the Old Testament as well and the value of the, the Old Testament. Then right. can, go ahead, Denise. In regard to trying to encourage our brothers who are weaker, then perhaps we have understanding more. Is anyone going to the brothers who are teaching that fallacy and inviting lack of faith in God's word and who he is? I think in some cases, yes. I think there are people that are calling certain things to attention. But yeah, I don't know any specific examples. Uh, the only example that I was thinking about earlier was, uh, what's the guy's name? Very popular preacher out of Atlanta. Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley, yeah. That has written a book basically encouraging believers to ignore the Old Testament, essentially, which you can't do because the New Testament is full of the Old Testament. In fact, you can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. Yep, that's the good example. But I'm sure there have been people that have uh, raised that issue, and people are responsible to respond to any encouragement along those lines. Well, Paul ends... The little paragraph here with something of a prayer. I've called it a prayer. It's not strictly speaking a prayer, but it's more of a desire on the part of Paul. And the way he phrases it, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. And if you remember the prior verse, we can learn from the perseverance of Old Testament saints and be encouraged. And by the way, the word encouragement here and in verse 4 is the same word that's related to the paraclete, paraklesis, I think is the Greek word there, as the idea of encouragement and in some cases comfort and in relationship to the Holy Spirit in the upper room. Uh, some translations translate the paraclete as the comforter. When Jesus promised the comforter, that's the same word that we have here as the idea of encouragement or comfort. So the God, in other words, the source of perseverance and the source of encouragement for the Old Testament saints 
is also the source for you and I. And somewhat of a prayer or a desire for the Roman believers. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ. So now he's bringing it back to the main thing that he's dealing with throughout this passage, the relationship with one another here. In other words, don't let these cultural differences, these differences in convictions divide us. The God of perseverance and encouragement grant us to be of the same mind. In other words, same attitude of Christ-likeness, unity. In fact, a major theme of all of these passages is the unity of the body of Christ. These differing convictions divide us, and we have to do all that we can to uh, prevent those divisions and, uh, in fact, promote unity. So grant to you to be of the same mind. That doesn't mean we agree on everything. That doesn't mean that we have uniformity, but uh, we have a unity of spirit and a desire to not let these things divide us or separate us. Be of the same mind with one another And again, it's according to Christ Jesus. In other words, according to not only his example, but according to his desire and according to the power that he gives us to be able to to do those things. So that's the content of the prayer that God would grant us this unified mind, this oneness, this desire to not divide over these questionable areas but to seek the unity of the body of Christ in these same areas. Now, there are some things that we divide and certain things that uh, we separate, but uh, these are the major things and not the uh, questionable things that Paul is dealing with in chapters 14 and 15. And if we have the content of the prayer in verse 5, we have the purpose of that prayer, and this is kind of the bottom line purpose in verse 6, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this unity is going to promote the glory of God. And interestingly, we don't have time to develop it here. Maybe I'll make some more comments on it next week. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Commentators are a little divided in how they take that and understand it, but I think it uh, somewhat supports the deity of Christ in in terms of the word Father there. Uh, I'll expand upon that next time if I remember. But uh, beyond that, the bottom line here is if we follow through on what Paul is encouraging here and what Paul in a somewhat of a desire or a prayer, that will result in the glory of the Father uh, and and God himself. And that's the bottom line for all that we do to glorify our, our Lord. And obviously the alternative to that, when we are divided, when we uh, separate and we, when we don't accept one another and when we don't give up 
our, our liberty for the benefit of others, then it detracts from the glory of the Lord. But when we follow through, then God is glorified. And our last slide here, pleasing believers in this biblical sense, so I call it spiritually, pleasing believer, believers spiritually is glorifying God. In other words, brings glory to God. Any other comments? Comments on the passage, insights, things that impressed you by six verses here. We made it through six verses. Can you imagine that? Ray, your conclusion sounds a lot like when I read Proverbs 3, 1 through 4, about Solomon encouraging his sons to keep his commandments. And then in verse 4, so that you'll find favor and good repute in the sight of God and men. Yes, and men. Yeah, exactly. I found someone else I need to pray for. Thank you for letting me know his name. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, Andy Stanley is generally pretty good. That's just one negative that I think, unfortunately, he's published. Any other comments before we get into some prayer here? Well, let's do it. Pray I, for, I, pray I, for I sure. Go ahead. Who's that? Sandy. Sandy. Yeah. Um, okay. Somebody told me this morning that in Afghanistan, they had the large, second largest church in the world or group of believers. I don't know if they're allowed, how much they're allowed. And they're just being killed right off. Wow. Since, yeah. So they're just killing them like crazy. Mm. Yeah. Let's pray for the church in Afghanistan. Yep. Let's do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not bound by geography, be it Albuquerque or Afghanistan, uh, Denver or Idaho Falls, or places in Mexico or Norman's Church. Father God, we lift all these things before you. Lord, they are not a surprise to you, um, like hearing about them. Because of Christians being murdered and um, pastors dying of COVID are, are not exactly pleasant. We do thank you that um, we do have hope, however, um, and that we can encourage one another in hope. I pray that you would be putting um, many believers uh, around Tony and his wife uh, around uh, Norman's pastor and his wife, um, and Norman as well, as he needs encouragement as to what he's going to teach. Um, Father, I pray that you would be, the Afghan Christians need much more than just encouragement. Mm. They need protection as well, and we pray your protection over them. Mm. pray your encouragement for Mariana as well, and Bill and Mary Lee as they have to make decisions for her. In Jesus' name. Mm. Father, I'd like to pray for whatever's going on in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. I know that this is a person we're supposed to pray for, and that, but we also, and we also know that you're sovereign and you have total control. You know exactly what's going on, and we thank you for that. And we pray for the for the people there that you will that you will comfort them and. And help the ones in the right to prevail. And you know there's angelic war going on, and and I just pray that you will give strength to the 
the ones that are fighting for you and take away strength from the other ones. In Jesus' name, amen.